Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, hosted by Josh Abatoy and Tymon Klein. Our mission is to promote a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Welcome back to the American Reformer podcast. Uh, this is Timon Klein, Editor-in-Chief, and um, I've got a special guest today, Josh Abitoy, Executive Director of American Reformer. Some of the uh, faithful listeners may have heard of him. Um, Josh, we got a ton of stuff going on at uh, American Reformer this week, and uh, people should keep an eye out because there's more stuff coming. But we had, we had uh, one article in particular that went up this morning. Uh, which was from you. And uh, the, we have an executive director that often writes for us, which is fantastic as an editor-in-chief. Uh, we also have a column that's come out um, this afternoon that's from Ben Dunson, our contributing editor and founding editor, and put up some resources as well. Um, today is is uh, January 12th, just for reference. But the piece you wrote, uh, which is timely, uh, provocative, and forward-looking, is uh, called American Crisis, subtitle, Will Texas Save Our Republic? And it's dealing with the emerging, I was going to say immigration crisis, but that's been emerging for a long time, but the emerging uh, potential conflict between state and federal forces, state and federal law, state and federal interests um, at the southern border in Texas, which is uh, your home state currently. So tell us a little bit about uh, this piece, uh, what what prompted you to write it, and then we'll we'll jump into the uh, the confines of the argument. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this is a piece that's been marinating in my mind for some time. Um, you know, probably like you, I was exposed to. I probably saw some headlines about this case from 2011 called Arizona v. U.S. Mm-hmm. back when it came out. Didn't read it closely. And then, you know, in law school, I ended up studying it a fair bit. Um, you know, being a good legal conservative, I, um, of course, I, I uh, enjoyed Scalia's dissent in that case. Um, but there's uh, there's some very interesting stuff in his dissent and, and in other parts of our political tradition that I would say um, become all the more uh, salient in light of recent uh, developments on the border and with um, with the interplay between the federal government and the states, and so that's that's really the genesis here. Um, you know, maybe put differently, um, the, our political tradition says things which Scalia's dissent sort of uh, summarizes and encapsulates in a very elegant way. But it says things about states uh, that that if true uh, should should um, you know really encourage like much different behavior from governors that are facing crises like Greg Abbott mm-hmm. um, and so so we can we can start digging into the weeds on some of that but but the the bottom line I, I mean the the point here is of course we know everybody knows immigration is this intractable problem for 40 years right and like it's so commonplace now to read articles that just decry this once again, and, and it's it's bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a writer, 
It's like every time you look at the issue, it's worse than you expected. It gets worse every year. Um, and, and, you know, people shout stop and stop and stop. And it gets more and more extreme every year and nothing ever changes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so, so I'm, I'm looking at that issue concurrently with looking at, um, some things that, that Justice Scalia said about, um, immigration, uh, and the, you know, getting to the very heart of the concept of what it means in our system for states to be dual sovereigns. And I'm putting, I'm trying to put some things together for people. And ultimately, yeah, it is, it is a direct appeal to Greg Abbott. Um, and, and it's not really a legal article. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a political article. Um, and it's an appeal to him, uh, I think, to take some bold action. Um, and, and events have changed in recent days, I think, that, that make that action um, very likely to be successful. Right. So, so let's, let's take it a bit from the top here. I have a few, a few questions that will help orient the, the listeners, perhaps the, perhaps the uh, less initiated. I mean, everyone, I think, that's paying any kind of attention knows there's some kind of problem with our immigration policy, there has been for some time. Trump, of course, ran the, on this um, explicitly in 2016 and is, is doing so again. Um, I think the, the number you cite in your piece from a, um, a, a think tank is that we may be uh, inching up on 17 million undocumented uh, illegal immigrants in the country, which is a problem that's a substantial portion of the population. So the, the problem, at least in a general sense, maybe even a vague sense, um, most people are aware of, but um, this particular moment uh, with involving Governor Abbott um, has been precipitated by by a, a couple of events. I think you can you can summarize it very quickly to bring people up to speed on what's kind of going on in Texas um, and their their conflict currently with Biden's DOJ. Yeah, two two different things. Um, one of them was the instigator of my article. So the first thing is Texas passed this bill called Senate Bill Four, which essentially creates a couple new Texas state crimes that track federal crimes. So there's you know there's laws on our books at the federal level about being um, illegally present in the states, and Texas created just you know like mirror state laws on those same matters. Um, and the real cash out of passing that law, well, there's two reasons why you do it. One is it allows you to detain people who are present in Texas illegally. And then number two, um, it, it uh, more of the long game, but th this, this law was designed to um, be a vehicle for challenging the majority uh, opinion in Arizona versus US from 2011. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, literally, as we had this article in the in the hopper overnight, there were reports mm -hmm. that the, um, you know, there were, there was further kind of conflict between the Federal Border Patrol um, down down in Eagle Pass, um, and in Texas, the um, and the and the Texas National Guard, right? The the National Guard uh, at the mm -hmm. direction of Abbott, of course, um, had deployed. Um, to, you know, to prevent uh, any access to the river, which would include, you know, the, the federal agents who were facilitating, by many reports, uh, illegal crossings. Um, and the DOJ, you know, is now suing Texas over this new law that you just referenced, um, even as it's going into action aggressively so, rightly so, from Governor Abbott. 
<clears throat> yeah, and and that um, I, I want to revisit that point because I'd, I'd say the um, the response to the action that occurred last night I think has already been sort of validation of the overall thesis of the article, and we we can get into some of that in more detail. But um, the people of Texas, and I'd say many across the nation, are are ready for for somebody, anybody to to actually step up and show real leadership on the issue. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a real chance. I mean, there's been some criticisms from the right um, in recent recent days against Governor Abbott um, as, as perhaps being too soft on various things. But this is a real chance, and this is what you're calling him to do. It's a real chance for him to show strength and leadership, um, even at a national scale, by example, um, because this is this is not mm -hmm. an issue. It, it perhaps um, foremost touches Texas, but it's not the only state. It's not the only border state. And it's not the only state that um, is impacted by illegal immigration through other other means. I mean, I'm in I'm in Florida. Um, it's a it's a somewhat different equation, but it's the same issue at at heart. Um, it's just Texas, you know, is kind of the most visible uh, situation. Uh, but this is a national issue, and, and Governor Abbott can take leadership on that. And you you advocate for something you call the old Hickory option, which may be uh, obvious to certain of our readers, but maybe. Tell everybody what you mean by that in terms of the posture that Abbott should take um, in re with regards to the, uh, the the federal resistance. Yeah, old hickory option. That's Andrew Jackson. For those who don't know, um, and I, I had I had one reader uh, make a comment to me that hey, maybe not everybody knows you know old old hickory and Andrew Jackson. Um, I probably take that for granted because I grew up in Tennessee, and it's like you know. In, in the part of the state I grew up in, everybody, you know, every second business is old hickory this, old hickory that, you know, so, um, but, uh, but yeah, that's Andrew Jackson, and it, it may be apocryphal, but um, certainly it's, it's directionally accurate in describing his posture toward the Supreme Court. Uh, John Marshall and the Supreme Court um, ruled in favor of the Cherokee Nation uh, in a lawsuit against the state of Georgia. Uh, where they challenged the the forced removal that led to the Trail of Tears, um, the Supreme Court said Georgia could not remove uh, the Cherokee Nation, and uh, you know Jackson stood by um, and allowed Georgia to nonetheless um, remove the Cherokee Nation mm -hmm. from uh, from much of the state, and you know that's where we get the Trail of Tears, and you know and, and a Cherokee Nation popping up in Oklahoma. Um, so, so you know, uh, it's the point of this is not to get into the facts of you know of that at all. But um, here's here's the broader point, and you know, like people, we learn this in law school. These are um, they're kind of often displayed as like sort of big bad crisis points when um, you know maybe maybe it's when the Supreme Court um oversteps they they step past uh where they really belong and they get into a political question mm -hmm. um they they make an imprudent decision that uh you know simply uh is almost fated to be ignored um by anyone with an army the supreme court doesn't have an army right our whole system depends upon um the people who have armies treating the supreme court's decision as if they're legitimate mm -hmm. um and so, you know, the, the, I mean, essentially the, the, the old hickory option is to say, and it, and it can be invoked by a, by a president or a governor, but it is to say, um, this is one of those cases, like the Supreme Court has crossed a line. They're, they're either 
so clearly in conflict with our constitution or their, you know, whatever they they're so they've so aggrandized their role that they are not owed um, obedience and deference on this issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, you know, you're technically entering, um, you know, what you might call a state of nature. You, you know, you're entering it or, or, you know, maybe you could call it a, a moment of exception as well. And like this sort of minion speak, mm -hmm. but you're entering, a, um, you're entering this part in politics where there's now, there's now no longer any game plan, right? The, the Supreme Court's supposed to be the final arbiter. Well, at least that's what we think. I mean, I think that's probably a little bit more complicated. And if you take a departmentalist view, you think that it's good for these various branches of government to compete and, and jostle for uh, constitutional legitimacy. But, but, but regardless, in some senses, the, the Supreme Court has been broadly viewed as the final arbiter of a constitutional question. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when you invoke this option and say they're, they're not infallible, they've, they've gotten it wrong on this issue. And in fact, they've gotten it so wrong that, uh, you know, it's not, it's, uh, you know, we really can't, we really can't go with what they said. Mm -hmm. um, that's happened at a handful of points in our history. Um, it's likely to happen again. Um, and it, it's likely to happen more often when the Supreme Court, you know, aggrandizes its role mm -hmm. and strikes down state laws, gets involved in, in disputes, um, gets involved in, in a, something that looks more like a political question uh, rather than, you know, a case between two parties who have a beef with each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously our Supreme Court's done a, done a whole lot of that, uh, especially since, you know, uh, the later half of the 20th century. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're in a political environment where there's much less, there, there's not really a, a, a strong national consensus on a lot of issues anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when the Supreme Court uh, weighs in on a contentious issue now, and especially if it's something that's looking at it like a political question, is really inviting challenges against its own legitimacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 sort of undercutting the, um, you know, there's a certain these analogies have been made before. Um, it's just, it's of course not anything that the uh, the court has expressed itself, but it does operate this way in in a sort of judicial supremacy model, which is a sort of you know, magisterium, and there's certain parties that that expect it to act that way in a, in an extremely authoritative manner. Um, you know, the the sort of uh, inerrancy of the black robes, so to speak. They're, they're there to solve all problems for us. Mm -hmm. And this is, I mean, we we've talked about this before in private, but this is this is simply not the either actual or intended or functional reality of the American system, where there is sort of this, as, as you would express it, a contest for sovereignty at various points um but may, maybe to help orient the the listeners further i mean something you invoke that that non-specialists won't be familiar with is this idea of federal preemption um in in this case mm -hmm. in the case of immigration the idea what people need to know is kind of that um you know if congress has has sort of inserted itself and and presented what we might ca call a, a comprehensive policy um, over a particular issue, the states are then precluded from contradicting that policy. And there's several questions you could bring up in the case of immigration, in the case of the particular case of Texas at this point. Um, but one would be that, um, you know, Congress has presented no such comprehensive policy, certainly not an effective one. 
um, that, that sort of low hanging fruit. But then the other one is whether, um, you know, this is an appropriate place for, for Congress to insert itself and whether it's actually fulfilling, you know, if it's sort of taking the place of the states to protect their sovereign borders, um, is it actually, you know, fulfilling that role or does someone else need to step in and simply name checking federal preemption, um, you know, is not, is not sufficient in this regard? Yeah. So, so let's talk about federal preemption. And I don't, I mean, I, you know, maybe I'll surprise you here, Tom. And I don't think the concept of preemption is like illegitimate in every case, right? I mean, let's think about some really um, obvious example. Um, you know, uh, the Constitution gives Congress the authority to regulate interstate commerce. Um, and so, you know, if there's, uh, you know, uh, like, you know, we need we need legal regimes around like water rights that split states. And, you know, um, if, you know, Congress could pass a law that says, hey, a state can't impose a tariff on all its goods nationally. Right. Um, because that's sort of regulating interstate commerce. Um, and so, you know, in, in such a case, um, if Congress passes laws pursuant to that exclusive constitutional authority, the laws that they pass um, should be supreme over and against the state law. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's kind of the base, that's like sort of the baseline. Everybody can kind of understand that just with using their common sense and reading the constitution. If it's like an act, if it's some kind of power, you know, exclusively given to Congress, um, Congress, you know, has to have some ability to be the supreme law of the land. Um Okay, fine. You know, we can infinitely complicate it from there, but but that's just like the basic concept of um, preemption, and then particularly like that is, you know, um, you know, it's it's on that basic concept that Scalia would entertain in general, um, you know, a conflict preemption analysis in the case of a state stepping into immigration. However, you know, Scalia is not Scalia is a little um, he does not say definitively that immigration is is a matter that you know in his opinion exclusively belongs to the federal government the constitution doesn't say that the constitution says uh, that the process of naturalization belongs to the federal government so that the process of how mm-hmm. a person becomes a citizen and the reason why the constitution has that is because um it was actually because of it was to solve lax immigration under the articles of confederation um, under the Articles of Confederation, actually did require uh, that if one of the states admitted a person as a citizen, the other states had to recognize that admission. And so you had these weird, perverse incentives where some states were very strict and some states were very lax, and they they had a lot of conflict um, around how people were naturalized uh, as citizens. And you you know there was sort of like a maybe a sorts of race to the bottom and naturalization between the states under the articles. So when they came to the constitution, they wanted to vest that power exclusively in the federal government. Um, and, you know, without, we get into the details, but it's, it, it does seem if you're going to have a federal structure that it makes all logical sense in the world, uh, that the naturalization function would reside at the federal level. Um, but, but, that does not necessarily tell you, okay, what about immigration then? You know, what do we do with immigration? Does that mean, m- must we must we then say that immigration is exclusively vested with the federal government? Um, 
And Scalia brings up some evidence in his dissent, uh, but but that was a very live question. There's actually a lot of precedent before Arizona v. U.S. at the federal level where uh, states had immigration laws that were stricter than the federal government and they were upheld. Uh, there, there were live discussions and debates about the federal government's ability to uh, pass immigration law. Um, so this this was a you know this was an open question and Congress didn't step into immigration really until the 20th century in terms of like passing legislation national legislation on immigration. Um, so you know that's all just important historical background to say yes in theory um, you know we we all can admit there's this thing called preemption which is where you know. Uh, the Constitution gives something to Congress, and therefore Congress can pack, pass a law on it, and states cannot conflict with it. Okay, fair enough. There's a question as to whether immigration even is such a thing. Um, but then there's another question, which is, okay, even if immigration were uh, given to Congress as a power, um, does that therefore, you know, um, e even if that were the case, um, do the laws that are being challenged in a particular case conflict with the congressional statute? And, you know, and that's that's the other thing that, you know, in, in Arizona v. U.S., Scalia said no. And common sense would tell you the same with these Texas laws. If, if you've written a statute that basically mirrors a federal law that just and the only purpose of it is to allow state officials to enforce it rather than federal officials. It's really hard to it's really hard to articulate how that state law conflicts with congressional intent at the time that a law was passed, um, especially if you're using this narrow conflict preemption analysis. Okay, um, enter uh, another type of preemption that's been invented by courts, uh, which I think people should be much more skeptical of, which is called field preemption. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe we could have an argument about this. I don't know if you think field preemption is a, is a valid doctrine in any case. I tend to be I very don't. skeptical of yeah. it. Um, but field preemption basically says, okay, if the power is given to Congress and they do comprehensive, comprehensive legislation in, in the area, um, then a state just can't pass laws about it, full stop. Like, even if the laws, you know, would appear to be uh, synergistic with the congressional law, no, can't do it. Um <clears throat> I, I think that I think the whole doctrine of field preemption is wrong. I think Scalia is skeptical of it, um, you know, but but that's that the field preemption was actually the rationale that the Supreme Court used uh, when they overturned the Arizona laws. Mm -hmm. And in this new Texas versus Department of Justice case, it's the theory that they're likely to use here as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I mean, without without trying to get into a you know, a long, long form kind of nerdy debate about preemption in general. I mean, um, I guess I would say I, I'm not, I'm not, you, you asked if I'd be, I suggest I might be surprised at the beginning that you, you find some validation for um, a kind of federal preemption. I mean, if we, if we want to call it that as an extension of um, something inherent in the constitution, it, it, you know, in article six, you know, I think that's fine, but it hasn't, it wasn't really articulated until, um, you know, fairly recently by the Supreme Court in, in the sort of solidified way that we now deal with it on both fronts, um, whether field, mm -hmm. you know, field preemption or not. Um, 
so prior to that, I mean, the, the general structure, just taking it from the top, is you know, the federal government has purview over external duties and mitigating against conflict between the states to hold the thing together, which makes perfect sense. The, the waterways, um, you know, foreign treaties, um, those sorts of external and internal in terms of interstate um, issues. That all makes perfect sense. I don't think you need a particular doctrine to to explicate that. It, it is inherent in the Constitution and, and in the logic of, of the federal polity. Um, where it gets tricky, in my opinion, is when it goes beyond either the internal state, uh, internally it goes beyond the interstate conflict, or as several cases um, made clear, you know, the um, the federal government can basically support pre-existing state uh, efforts in certain things. Natural disasters is like the easiest one to illustrate this with. They can support the the internal policies of the states. Um, this this idea though that um, it's sort of a race to certain um, doctrinal areas, and if Congress beats the state to it, it can you know to claim the field is as you said the most suspect uh, expression of this this idea. If the first kind of expression was simply stating the obvious that's inherent in the Constitution, you know that's one thing. If if it's now providing an avenue for encroachment upon inherent uh, abilities and, and, and really responsibilities of states, um, that, that is much more suspect. And so the entire doctrine, insofar as it's been largely taken up with the latter, um, I, th I think should be suspect yeah. to people. Um, and as you said, it's, it likely will be the, the key kind of basis for, for the argument of the DOJ at this point. Um, so I think, I think people should be aware of that. I mean, yeah. most people probably didn't think that these kinds of uh, getting into the weeds like this would be relevant to their lives, but but here we are, um, and it it is very well, relevant. And, relevant. And one more thing to before we move on, you know, past the the legal uh, the legal weeds. Um, you said something there where you said, um, you know, where does the power where to where is the power inherent, and this is this is part of Arizona v. U.S. because the majority they. Again, the, the test for preemption is that uh, it's an area in which Congress sort of has this constitutional um, uh, supremacy. They have a constitutional grant to be the sovereign on X, Y, or Z. And there's no, there's no explicit constitutional grant to Congress to be the sovereign on immigration. Mm -hmm. And um, so what the majority ends up doing is saying um, – yeah, the, the, the right to exclude and or the I mean, really, it's the right to not exclude the way it's exercised. Mm -hmm. But that right is inherent to sovereignty. Um, it's kind of a necessary consequence of the federal government being the sovereign. And of course, they must have the ability to regulate immigration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, like, like putting on my law nerd hat. I mean, this is one of the things I love about the Scalia descent is he, he kind of flips this on his head and says very true things about our political tradition. Um, that we could endlessly debate about, but but we all we all have to we all say our tradition says this, and then you can argue about what it means. But mm -hmm. our tradition says that states are sovereigns, mm -hmm. and so Scalia says, you know, using applying field preemption to immigration is stripping the states of sovereignty. It's insulting their sovereignty. Mm -hmm. It's taking it's depriving them. I love this line. It's depriving them of one of the 
uh, one of the defining characteristics of what it means to be a sovereign. Um, and this is not, you, you know, that assertion and its presence in our political tradition is not really disputable. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that, that, that that's a that's a very broadly held, and it, it and this ties into the Constitution in the sense that the states, when they entered into the Constitution, were unquestionably sovereigns, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they give this you know sort of um, limited grant of power to the federal government, and everything that they don't grant, they retain for themselves, mm-hmm. and so you know it's the power to if immigration being a core component of sovereignty was not expressly granted to Congress in the Constitution, um, you know, then then we're probably left in a situation where there's some concurrent jurisdiction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where, yes, the federal government as a sovereign has some inherent power to regulate immigration in certain respects, but so too do the states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um and that's that's tough. I mean, how does that how does that resolve itself if that's really the case? Mm-hmm. That that gets tricky. Um, but but anyways, the the and you know the the point of all of this though is really to then turn to the the political application and and talk about all of this theory um, sort of exists, uh, you know, to to resolve disputes and conflicts over sovereignty, mm-hmm. and. You know, much of our history has done a good job of that, but sometimes there are occasions where it, where it breaks down. I think we're approaching such an occasion. Um, and you know, what's really what's what's going on is 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 an untenable political situation. Mm-hmm. You know, where the federal government is so uh, thoroughly dedicated to, you know, Congress has laws on the books that make it a crime to enter the, the United States illegally. Mm-hmm. That require immediate detention. They require it's got a border wall and funding for it on the books that never got spent on a border wall. Um, so there's all these great laws on the books and a successive administrations. It's not only that they like don't do a good job enforcing those laws on the books, and and then they say you know they they fail to do it, and then they uh-huh. say well we have prosecutorial we don't have infinite resources so we have to decide where to prioritize our enforcement actions mm-hmm. but you know that happened up through the obama years and then um in the second obama term he actually turned that into a formal program so he turned his program of not enforcing federal law into an official program that gave people like this sort of quasi legal status um where they were going to have deferred uh you know deferred enforcement mm-hmm. action or you know various other um sort of illegal routes you know that basically just let people uh stay in the united states indefinitely mm-hmm. um and of course because of the federal gridlock it's not like there's been an amnesty um you know or any anything like that but uh you know this this large group of people uh who are in, in kind of legal limbo has just grown and grown and grown every year um the the court in arizona said you know was totally incurious about whether the administration is actually enforcing this congressional comprehensive scheme. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they say we've got to defer to Congress's power. Um, but then ultimately what they what they want is states deferring to um, an administration that decides to neglect immigration law. Mm-hmm. And that and it's actually that policy uh, that conflicts with what a state is doing and requires requires the state laws to be struck down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
it's it's all very perverse, right? And this is all happening in the same context of um, sanctuary states um, totally undermining federal law directly in their written law. Like you just take the two laws, the federal law and the sanctuary state law, and compare them side by side, and they're just basically inconsistent. And of course, you know, no, um, well, our current administration is is totally ambivalent about that. They like it actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, you know, so so what does all of this mean? Um, one, you know, Governor Abbott, you are a sovereign. Uh, you know, this is clear from our political tradition, or you're the governor of a sovereign state, rather. And um, your sovereignty is being deprived uh, in a very egregious way, in a way that's clearly causing uh, suffering for the citizens of your state. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's causing significant drains on public resources. And more than that, it's causing suffering for the whole nation, right? But but his primary concern, of course, is Texans. Mm-hmm. That's number one. And then number two is um, when you look at the when you look at the sort of vast array of statutes, the administrative neglect of those statutes, the way that the uh, Supreme Court precedent has developed on this issue, the the one like sort of deciding rule in all of it is that it's a one way ratchet favoring open borders. That's the only way to make logical sense of the tortured mm-hmm. history of this immigration crisis for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's very good. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And the uh, to get back to, um, I'm, I'm just going to insert one more nerdy point, which is, you know, we're talking a lot about sovereignty, which is maybe not a term that most Americans are comfortable with, even though it's it's right there in our tradition, um, they may not think of certain things in that sense. But if you look at the at the founding, and I know you're you're also a fan of you know John Adams, um, as I am. You know when he talks about the 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 states, where are they where are they getting their power from? Because there's this theory in the 17th and 18th century that sovereignty can't die. It can be transferred, but it can't die. There's no such situation where there's just no sovereignty. That's anarchy. And so, I mean, Adams and mm-hmm. others make very clear, where's this, where do the states get this power to do what they're doing right now, even collectively? But it's, it's coming from somewhere. And he says it's from the royal charters, right? So the sovereignty invested in mm-hmm. by tradition in the English tradition in the, the English magistrate or in the English monarch is by grant given to through royal authority bypassing parliament and this is this all gets into the debates of of why we were able to uh, secede from britain is is a you know that sovereignty that's how it's transferred the the monarch gave it to the states what became the states and then you know it is a distribution of certain necessary functions to the federal government by the states collectively again in order to, you know, to hold the union together. Okay. People often think of, I think this would be a mistake. Stephen Wolf's made this, this point before, and we've, we've talked about it probably on the podcast before. It is wrong to think of state governors as lesser magistrates and that this act by Abbott would be some kind of rebellious act, even if it's justified by some kind of rebellious act. They at, um, you know, at the weakest position, they're dual sovereigns, as Scalia is stating. I think that's the easiest case to make. Another case you could make is actually, if you wanted to be logically consistent with the sort of theory that comes through Protestantism, is that the the federal administration is in some ways occupying the lesser magistrate position, 
because they're the ones through that it's uh, this sovereignty is delegated to from the original source. Therefore, they can't become supreme in the, in their sovereignty. They can only do perform the functions that are delegated to them through the current of the original sovereignty this transference from monarch to state and then to the to the union. Yeah, yeah, and that's a. Um... I'm sympathetic to that argument uh, as a prescriptive matter, mm-hmm. um, you know, but then I, I, you know I think that uh, stepping back and considering the matter descriptively in terms of you know where um, where has uh, sovereignty sort of organically accrued? I mean, mm-hmm. I, we all we all sort of I think can can acknowledge that you know. Uh, a number of things uh, happened that uh, over the course, I mean, especially after the Civil War and then mm-hmm. the course of the 20th century, uh, this, the, the federal government obviously significantly accrued, um, you know, the incidences of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, I think that, that that's a very interesting theoretical debate to have. Even a lot of, uh, a lot of very traditionalist uh, theorists about sovereignty, recognize that there's an or there's an organic nature to it, mm-hmm. um, and that it you know over time um, it does it can shift and relocate, and um, <clears throat> you know certainly it certainly does that as a descriptive matter, um, you know, and then some would say it, it happens even you know it could happen over time, right? Where you have, for example, a confederation. That over time um, gets it has a tighter and tighter and tighter symbiosis until all of a sudden, the the prime minister of that confederation is really just more functionally, yeah, you know, the right. prince or, right. or what have right. you, and, um, and and it can happen the other way too, by the way, organically, mm-hmm. um, and that that happens over a long time span, right? That's not some sort of immediate thing, um, and and you know when I when I my conceptions of sovereignty are probably um i probably am closer to that conception maybe than the the very strict sort of prescriptive uh, view that you know well the sovereignty had to come from some predecessor you know mm-hmm. and tracing that out I, I i do tend to think it can arise organically you know within from a group of people um over time uh you know and and such mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. but you know, all all of that all of that theory is um you know in some ways i think irrelevant to this question because it's sort of like we don't really dispute that by right greg abbott is a sovereign and then i think even if you don't take such a prescriptivist evaluation of the situation i think we'd also have to say if you're just sort of a machiavellian looking at the state of affairs i think you say uh, the federal government has tried to take this job and it's uh, failing at mm-hmm. it. And um, it's, you know, sort of a exceptionally weak administration mm-hmm. under Biden. And at the same time, um, Greg Abbott will have tremendous acclaim uh, if he steps in and takes this, uh, takes this step to protect his citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think either, either line of analysis probably gets you to the same uh, answer that Greg Abbott ought to be acting as a sovereign um, with respect to this issue in these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll pause yeah. there. I've got a lot more to say. No, no, I think but, that's right. And there's a couple of things you could 
you could insert here, which is to say, you know, the the um, if the job's not, and it's as simple as this: if the job's not getting done um, for the good of the people, for the preservation of not only the state but the nation, because we all know that that Texas, as we were talking about earlier, it's it's not just about the security of the state. Um, that is the the primary entry point in, in many ways. So it represents. Uh, you know the health of the of the nation as well, and someone needs to, um, you know, take care of this for the good of the people. So you're not necessarily usurping a role, um, but you but you are doing something that it, uh, you're trying to perform a good that extends beyond um, even your immediate concerns because no no one else is really doing it. And and preeminent for all rulers should be the preservation of their their people and the longevity of the nation. Um, and you also have this mm-hmm. this very real politic. Uh, consideration, you know, from, from several of the, um, in, in Machiavelli's orbit, the sort of Renaissance Italian theorist talking about, you know, what a, what a quote unquote monstrous regime is, which is when, you know, all distribution of sovereignty to whatever organs or bodies gets to the point where they so sufficiently counteract each other that nothing good can actually be done. Um, no, no one can really take the lead and, and you have, and, and we would, people today talk about gridlock. It's essentially that, right? Nothing can actually be done for the people because, uh, we're so wedded to procedure and debating, uh, some of the stupid questions that we've even been debating that are, that really don't cash out anywhere, um, that you, that you can't actually perform the central and only justifying, uh, component of, of governance, which, which is for the good and protection of the people at the most basic level. Um, so I think you're seeing some of that in real time. I mean, this, we talk about this on this podcast all the time is the, the return of real politics, not real politic in this, this mm-hmm. case, but mm-hmm. real politics, which is like considering the most granular basic things that government is supposed to do, why it's there, why it's granted power at all. And for a long time, we've, we've been talking about, you know, tax breaks or whatever, um, and now we're have to really, really having to consider much more basic things, um, you know, provision of, of goods and all and, these sorts of things. And one of the most basic things is the government has territory and it protects the territory. Yes. I mean, that is like one of, you know, and, and I mean, and on the flip side, the government has a people, mm-hmm. right? The government isn't responsible to everybody in the world. The government is responsible to a discrete group mm-hmm. of people as its citizens it is obligated to seek their common good yes. um, and and that's a you know it's not the universe it's uh, to seek the common good of their people right and, the, and this is where um, yeah no no go ahead I, go i'm ahead. just going to make a point about uh, to illustrate that but but go ahead and finish your your thought on that well yeah I, i'm going to change gears a little bit but i was just going to say this is Another thing I'm trying to do in my piece is also provide provide justifications to people that come from different perspectives on the question of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Even if you're like a fully orbed, popular sovereignty guy, um, even so, I think you still have to get to the same answer with respect to what Greg Abbott is doing. Mm-hmm. And that is because it's an absurdity to have a fiction of popular sovereignty ex- expressed through Republican governance if the federal government or whoever's involved can essentially game the system by like infinitely, you know, um, changing uh, the people who vote. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. like that whole concept of 
popular sovereignty only works if there's some discrete group of people that you're even talking about. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's like it's just this endlessly open concept. Um, yeah, no, no, but I it just just was thinking um, for the purposes of illustration and the and and by analogy. So so we could do do this to help people think about this. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a Baptist anymore, I'm a Presbyterian, but someone that was very helpful to me um, in thinking about church for a long time was Mark Dever, right? And Mark Dever and Nine Marks, their their emphasis is on um, well-defined church membership and church discipline, right? And one of the points Dever would often make is, uh, you know, how is the pastor possibly to perform his role if he doesn't know who his people are? And he can't be pastor to the masses. Um, he's a, a human being confined by space and time. He has to know who his people are so that he can uh, minister to them, um, in a sense, spiritually protect them and discipline them. And by analogy, this is, so this is, you know, for, for a Baptist, which we could say is the closest to maybe a uh, politically a, a, a democratic view, which is closely related to popular sovereignty. Um, but it's still just this reality that you have to have uh, definitional boundaries in order for um, our leadership to to be able to perform their their prescribed duty. And I think by analogy, it, it works perfectly well with the point you were making. It doesn't really matter what you think about the ultimate source of sovereignty or government or its formation. Um, this is just an inescapable point for any perspective. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's it is important to play whack-a-mole with like sort of the various theoretical objections people can throw up. It's all just it's all sort of all of that stuff is ultimately sophistry mm -hmm. um, because we do have a scenario here where we have a government, a federal government that's purportedly dedicated to the good of the people of the United States of America. And it is importing over, you know, 1% in yeah, basically not, not legal. I mean, legal immigration is on top of that basically importing 1% population change every single year mm -hmm. of a grab bag of whomever wants to come. Mm -hmm. And we all know why they do that. It's, it's um, uh, those, those new um, subjects are more politically correct. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and really it, 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 what, I mean, really they hold their government less accountable mm -hmm. is really what the bottom line is. The, the, um, when you have a nation that has a shared history and tradition and you can have the you have the trust that's necessary to have a republic um when you have all of that it's a it's a fragile thing and um there's there's strong cohesion between the people and their rulers mm -hmm. and part of that means there's clear expectations for how the ruler should behave and there are consequences for a ruler betraying that trust mm -hmm. um you know, but but what we're seeing now, and and you know, this is the the point in my piece where I say that a changeling polity, you know, that purports to be American, is emerging from all of this chaos, and it looks more like an empire, mm -hmm. and it's a government that sits over a factious citizenry where that's in factions that don't have a lot in common. They don't trust each other. They don't really meaningfully share a republican government, um, but they're all participating in this. American empire or economic convenience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is, you'll hear, that, you'll, that's sort of what, yeah. well, you, you'll hear people talk about, you know, it, it's kind of quips on Twitter, but, 
you know, are you a nation? Are you economic zones? And and we should really, um, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. If, are you being being governed as a people with the expectations you're talking about, with the um, in some sense solidarity, and and then in turn accountability for the rulers, or are you just being governed as sort of these zones of economic production um, that that can be, you know, are sort of at the whim of those in power? Yeah, and it's a double-edged sword for the people in power because, um, you know, when you're when you're a nation, there's a lot more. It's a two-way street. There's more accountability, but then you know, there's also more loyalty mm-hmm. uh, from the citizenry. When you transmogrify yourself into an empire, and then things start to, you know, not go so well, you've, you know, you're going to have significantly less loyalty or staying power with your citizenry. Mm-hmm. So, like. I don't know, let's talk about something super unforeseen, like the dollar um, ceasing to be the world's reserve currency. You know, like one of these sort of black swan events that can drastically change the economic trajectory of the American economic zone. Mm -hmm. Um, We've made ourselves far more fragile because there's much less loyalty to the American government. And so when the, the basis for that bargain of convenience falls away, so does the, so does the polity. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, I mean, really the, the sort of ups the ante in a way that may not be communicated well through um, typical commentary or, or news reports on what's going on um, is, is, you know, what's really at stake is the extent to which um, we have a coherent and definable nation moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, the extent mm-hmm. to which we can recover that, I think we still can. Um, some may have given up, but I think we still can. But certainly, um, aggressive and seemingly extreme action has to be taken at this point. And if you're going, you know, it's it's unfortunate that Abbott has to essentially fight a war on two fronts in, in order to do so. But uh, potentially, others will uh, take inspiration from that, and it makes it much more difficult for um for the federal government in this conflict to um proceed when you have multiple fronts um from their standpoint of various states taking the same sort of tack it's an optimal time for abbott to do something and this is really where i wanted to shift i mean the the structure of my article is to kind of establish that abbott can do this by right Mm -hmm. And then shifting over to the prudence of it, because I, in my opinion, that's a much more interesting debate. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, Abbott can do it. And, um, you know, he's uniquely, I, I would put it this way. I mean, a number of considerations. One, this is an existential question for America, not just for Texas, but for America. Um, two, he's the only conceivable governor that could do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the governors of obviously, we, you know, the regimes in California, New Mexico and Arizona um, are not going to do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe Jan Brewer would have, uh, but but uh, or maybe Carrie Lake would have actually won. Mm-hmm. But the current regime won't do this. And, and it really has to be done by a border governor mm-hmm. um, because the border governor has by far the best case that this is an invasion of my state. Uh, of course, I mean, there's a parade of horribles, and it's all true. Uh, there are murders across Texas. There are substantial drains on public resources. There's, you know, the drugs. There's cartels operating in Texas territory, mm-hmm. uh, sex trafficking. I mean, tra- uh, Texas, is it's a real thing. You know, in Texas, people 
watch their kids closely at grocery stores because there's abductions all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all consequences of having an open border. Texas has borne a very heavy share of those costs. And so, so of course, it's got it's got the cost, but then the flip side that that you know Abbott has that almost nobody else has that's impacted by the crisis is he's got a population in his state that is totally ready to back him up. Mm-hmm. And that that goes all the way from the grassroots all the way up to Elon Musk, mm-hmm. the new, you know, one of the richest men in the world and you know, a new a new citizen of Texas. Mm-hmm. Um these people are ready for him to do it. Mm-hmm. And he's got all this pent up you know, yearning from like, I would say a lot of patriots across the nation for somebody to step up and do it. And he's really the only guy who can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, so, I mean, something, so that's yeah. Yeah. Something you just said there too. I mean, th- there's a much made, especially of younger generations being, um, you know, overly pessimistic, but, but people have made the point that actually what that's an expression of is their desire for enthusiasm and inspiration. And I do think it's the case that mm-hmm. people are looking for leaders, even if they're not their own, you know, even if you're, let's say you're up in New Hampshire, um, but seeing someone, you know, take ownership of the, you know, we, we can fairly say the, the charge God has given them. That's the case with Abbott at this point. Um, take it, um, and and run with it and, and try to fulfill their duty faithfully in a sort of inspirational way. So this is, you know, at this point, it's not about uh, Abbott gaining national acclaim so he can run in a national election or something. But I do think that there is there will be a groundswell nationally of support for him if he stays the course, um, even for people that it's not yet touching their lives directly, just to know that someone's out there doing, you know, what the, what they should do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've already seen this, um, you know, it, it's so funny, but it, as of uh, last night, as of the time of recording, um, obviously the Abbott administration kicked federal agents out of Eagle Pass. They're literally blocking entry. I think this was very closely coordinated with um, sympathetic officers in uh, Border Patrol. Um, wonderful thing. Builds a really good record for eventual litigation. Mm. Um, and, uh, but that was like the first, that was a sign of life. This is an area where the Biden administration has allegedly been removing border barricades that Texas set up mm-hmm. in violation of a court order. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so great facts, uh, on which to start this kind of contest, uh, and Abbott blocks them. And the, the, it, this happened, the news came out late last night mm-hmm. and, the social media fervor and, and, and the enthusiasm for that nationally mm-hmm. was just like mind blowing. And a lot of this, you know, a lot of conservatives have been a little bit skeptical of Abbott, you know, mm-hmm. because he, at times it's felt like he needs to be pushed to the right. He's not willing to do, you know, he's, 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 he'll be responsive to the squeaky wheels and his constituency, but he, he himself wants to kind of, uh, drift closer to the center, but the voters keep pulling him. Mm-hmm. But you know, a lot of that was forgiven pretty quickly, and and I, a lot of it could be forgiven if he does meaningful, if he takes meaningful steps, and and more than the possibility of being forgiven or anything like that. Mm-hmm. This is a forty-year crisis that nobody has been able to stop, mm-hmm. and I think the path is right there. It's a hundred-dollar bill lying on the sidewalk. If Abbott will stand up and kind of. I would say do what 
history is asking him to do. Like it's not it's not rocket science. It's right there for him. Mm. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, the the piece today from Josh is called American Crisis, and and the uh, you know the title is key. It is an American crisis. Um, it's just manifesting in Texas first. The subtitle: Will Texas save our republic? And that's in many ways is is what it's at stake. Um, as you were you were talking about Josh, so um, any any parting things you want to throw out, um, either having to do with the article or maybe things you you wish you had thrown into the article that you want to add um, at this point for people. Um, just one last thing, you know, um, you know, I think this is a point worth considering, but you know, like just to say it tersely, I'm not sure I've said it yet, but I mean, basically, we're asking for, just to say it was like like we're talking to five year olds. We're asking Governor Abbott to signal that he's a credible threat to disobey mm-hmm. uh, a Supreme Court order mm-hmm. uh, to to stand down and allow the feds to wave everybody through. Mm-hmm. And we're we're saying, um, I mean, I'm not even necessarily saying do that. You know, you must do that, Greg Abbott. But I am saying certainly, at a minimum, you must signal that you're a credible threat. Mm-hmm to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the final thing I'd invite people to just kind of reflect on is, you know, we're in a weird situation. Our federal government is shoveling billions of dollars into remote overseas conflicts and we have in which we have uh, varying levels of any interest whatsoever. Um, and, uh, you know, we're clearly the, the Biden administration uh, says they're totally resource constrained. They just can't do anything about all this immigration. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody knows why it's happening. Um, why is it so easy to cross the border? Nobody knows. It's a mystery. Um, and, you know, so it, like it, it's you know, these are all sort of facial lies and everybody knows their lies at this point. Um but I mean, really imagine, you know, what if Governor Abbott did that? What if he really did say, like, he's a credible threat to disobey the federal government? And, you know, the Biden administration, like, I mean, the worst case scenario is that they try to, like, send the National Guard in, you know, and like, and restore order. What does that look like when your federal government has no resources to protect you from invasion? And then you try to do something and they will invade you. Mm-hmm like with federal troops mm-hmm. that would be sort of a tragic if, if abbott took that route and that's how it ended that would be kind of a tragic thing but it would still in a way be heroic and historic because it would be i mean it would be it would be um incredibly revealing mm-hmm. about the administration and the depths to which it will sink in its kind of uh, like fanatical quest mm-hmm. to remake america um so the, the the final pitch really to Abbott is even in failure, this is something worth doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's probably the note I'd end on. But I, I don't think it'll fail actually. Yeah, I don't I don't so. think so either. I mean I do think it's, it's something you're highlighting there worth reminding everybody, you know, when uh, you were speaking of foreign conflicts and it just so happens, you know, right right now, today, over the past couple of days, there's tons of messaging about how urgent the crisis in Yemen is. You know that's that's not coincidental, um, but you know when when we first started um, our now billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars of support for Ukraine, 
you know, they bring Zelensky into, um, you know, the Capitol to celebrate him and have him speak in a State of the Union style to all of Congress. And uh, it's just doubtful that they would they would, you know, do that for Abbott at this moment, who's facing a, a similar, at least analogous crisis of invasion. Uh, they're not going to do that. So it tells you exactly where they are and what this is about and, you know, where the resources are really funneled. And I think um, national support, um, both popularly and from other state houses and other governor's offices, um, you know, could send a clear message. And Abbott is in many ways um, giving people the opportunity in a tangible way to uh, deliver that message in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Josh, I mean, this is a, this is a fantastic article. Um, I'm glad we got it. We're able to get it up today, and it's very timely. Again, it's called American Crisis. A crisis. So, uh, go to AmericanReformer.org, uh, subscribe, follow us, and follow us here on the podcast as well as on Twitter um, for at AmReformer. And uh, you know, stick around every week to hear us talk about different things and with various authors um, of our pieces and books and all sorts of things. Um, but first, go read Josh's article. Um, so we'll call it a wrap there, Josh. All right. Thank you, Timon. Thank you. You can find American Reformer on the Internet at www.americanreformer.org or on x.com, formerly Twitter, at amreformer. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please consider supporting us today by making a tax-deductible donation through our secure online donation portal at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org.